Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We are in the statewide church working toward annual conference and as we are doing that our our bishop has set for us the theme of matthew 28 the great commission making disciples and so we here at the local level in crozet have been using this worship series to remind us about our call to discipleship hear once more the great commission and figure out what we're supposed to do with it So we are in the midst of that, and today we hear this, where Jesus has a very interpersonal connection with Simon Peter and encourages him to do something with his faith. It is part of the Great Commission, even though this is not in the Gospel of Matthew. And so today, as we explore this, hopefully the Lord will reveal to each and every one of us what it is that God would have us do now. Because that's the context under which the apostles are gathered this morning. Try to remember that they had had this incredible experience, three years of earthly ministry, experiencing firsthand the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. And then when they triumphantly enter into Jerusalem, they think things are going so well. He even goes into the temple and overturns some tables and manages to live three more days. And then suddenly, in the midst of Passover, he is betrayed. He is tried, he is humiliated and abused publicly, then he is crucified and killed. And then on the third day, miraculously, he rises again from the dead and has the first Easter resurrection celebration. And they live through all of this. And then he appears to them resurrected. And now they're in that state that many Christians find themselves in. What now? What do we do now? And so Simon Peter and six other of the apostles find themselves in this limbo. Christians often do this. We have encounters and experiences where we think we completely understand who we are and what it is that God wants from us. We have this joy, this expression. One of the founders of Methodism, John Wesley, called this assurance, where you know that you are in God's grace. You know God. You know God loves you, and everything feels awesome. And John Wesley recognized that. What a glorious mountaintop experience that was. He would write about it in his journals. I have assurance. And then the next day, I lost it. I got to find it again. And he wrote about how most faith journeys are like a sine wave, peaks and valleys, or as kids like to say, it's like a roller coaster. And we love the high, and then we end up in the low, and we're trying to figure out how to get back there. And so the apostles do what many of us do. They go back to normal. Because if you don't know what to do, you default to what you've done. And so Simon Peter says to them, hey, I'm going fishing. And that's what he did. In fact, when Jesus called the first four apostles to himself, he went down to the shore and there they were working. They were in the midst of hauling in fish. And Simon Peter and his brother uh, Andrew and then the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, they were there. And in the midst of their workday, Jesus said to them, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And just like that, they did. And so life had been a whirlwind tour for them. And now, not knowing what direction to take, Simon Peter goes back to what he always knew. I'm going back to fishing. Which, if you've read all the gospel accounts, you know that he wasn't always a really good fisherman. So I'm not really sure why he went back to that. It's a good time for a career change. 
But instead, he went back to what he knew. And so as he says, I'm going fishing, James and John, the sons of Zebedee in the text, they decide to go back with him and the others. They probably weren't fishermen, but hey, they're along for the ride. Where else are we going to go? The rock upon which Jesus was building some church has decided to go fishing. We shall follow. And so they're all out in the boat. And they're out at night fishing because that's an optimal time to fish. And they fish all night, and it's fruitless. They get nothing. And so in the morning, there's a guy out at shore who dares to call them because have you ever had someone tell you how to do your job? Feels good, doesn't it? I don't know because in clergydom, nobody ever tells the pastor how to do their job. You all respect and just let me go. But here they are. They're out. They're, not, they're probably feeling dejected. And I can only imagine the embarrassment Simon Peter and James and John feel like this is what we're supposed to be good at and we've caught nothing. And so there's a guy on the shore, and he says, hey, do you, have, you don't have any fish, do you? Oh, do you love it? He calls them children. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And I can just imagine the conversation that's not recorded that's happening in the boat. Do you believe this guy? What a jerk. He's standing on the shore. We've been working all night. How dare he tell us? How dare he try to tell us how to do our job? We should give this guy a little what for. We should tell him what we think. And then like good, polite disciples, they're like, no. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. Jesus says, try the other side of the boat. Now you know they're like, really, the other side of the boat? This is ridiculous. The other side of the boat. Fine. Do the other side of the boat. 153 fish. Large fish. I love how the author of John had to throw that in. They were very large fish. Just so you know. Large fish. And then in that moment, the disciple, the beloved disciple, the one who just a few weeks ago when we were talking about the Easter miracle of resurrection looked in the tomb and immediately believed that Jesus was resurrected, has the epiphany, looks out and goes, it's Jesus. That's Jesus over there. Of course it was because who else is going to say fish on the right side of the boat and you get a bunch of fish? We've done this before. And so I love this moment where Simon Peter, who's naked, by the way, did you know he was naked? Did you know that? We don't play that up in Sunday school because it's just endless giggles. But he's naked. And he's naked because that's the reality, that when you're out at night and you're covered in fish guts and you're fishing and it's sweaty and gross and, you know, hey, you're out there naked. It's not like there were a bunch of women around. They were naked. And so he decides, you know what? Jesus is over there. I need to throw on some clothes because the last thing you want to do is see Jesus fully naked. Cover your bits and pieces, and he dives into the water. I love how he puts on clothes to get into the water. And so he dives into the water. He will not wait. I mean, they're about 100 yards off. He's like, I must go now. And so he jumps into the water and he swims to the shore because he is not going to let anything keep him from seeing Jesus again. And he gets into that water and he swims out there. And this is in direct tension with a story that we're all familiar with where there was a storm and Jesus comes walking out on the water and Simon Peter is the one to have faith to say, Lord, tell me to walk to you on the water and I will do it. And Jesus says, come, come. And he gets close. He gets so close. He's walking on the water and he gets so close to Jesus that when he finally is afraid of the winds and the rising waves that he starts to fail and fall under the water. And Jesus, it says, he immediately grabbed him. He was that close. He could grab him. And so Peter has plenty of reason to be afraid of the water. He has failed in the water before. But this time, forget about asking Jesus to let him walk on the water. He's going to go in the water, under the water. He is going to swim to that shore. And he is not going to wait. He is not going to tarry. He is going to do it now because he wants to see Jesus. His purpose has showed up on the shore and he will go. And so he makes a beeline for the shore and the others are like, we'll just bring the fish. And they sail in. 
And when they get there, it's amazing what they find. They get there, and there is Jesus. And Jesus has been preparing for them. He has met them where they are in their false attempts to go back to normal. And he set a charcoal fire. And those grill masters out there, you know that setting up a charcoal fire on an open-air beach and keeping it burning is pretty impressive. That's Jesus. And so he's got this fire going, and he's already got some fish. He's been busy. Apparently, he got some fish. I like to think of Jesus like just snapped his fingers and there were fish. But He's got fish. He's got them ready. They're cooking. He says to Simon Peter, bring some more so there's more than enough fish. Bring some more. And he's got some bread. And then he tells them to sit down. Come over here and eat breakfast. Let us have this moment of food and fellowship and let us really celebrate this. And let me take care of you. It says he served them. First the fish and then the bread. And then once they're all sated and they're settled and they're sitting there and kind of enjoying the aftermath and the afterglow of this wonderful breakfast that their Lord and Savior has cooked for them. In front of all of the apostles, he looks at Simon Peter and he starts this dialogue and he says to him, do you love me? Simon Peter's like, of course I love you. Did you? I just put on clothes and dove into the water and swam to you. I love you. I love you. And Jesus says to him, then feed my lambs. And then he asks him again. And at this point, you know how when somebody asks you the same thing over and over again, it gets a little annoying? But Peter holds steady. Now Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yeah, yeah, I love you. I do. He says, well, tend my sheep. They need to tend them. Which is interesting because Peter is not a shepherd. He doesn't really know what's involved in this. And so then the third time Jesus asks him, do you love me? And the text says he got a little hurt. I think he was a little more than hurt. I would be more than hurt. I'd be like, what are you calling me, a liar? I told you twice. You need to hear it again? I told you twice in the same sitting, no less. You know, have you ever had somebody ask you a question over and over again and it grates on your nerves? The question I don't like over and over again is, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? Did you hear Google Maps tell us you have arrived at your destination? No. And the car's moving. Unless we're going through a car wash or a drive-thru, we have not arrived. And yet, I get the question a lot. You know, when it comes from this rather high-pitched voice in the back seat, are we there yet? You just asked that. And so he's a little annoyed. He's a little annoyed. He's a little hurt. And we can understand that. And I love his response. His response is theological. He says to him, you know everything. You know what I think. You know what I feel. You know what I have done. You know what I will do. You know everything. You know that I love you. Now, there are many scholars who have said that this is Jesus kind of playing back for Simon Peter, his massive failure, where Simon Peter boldly and with great hubris declared to Jesus at the Passover, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. And then Jesus looks at him and goes, before the rooster crows, three times, dawn, you, three times. And that's true. He follows Jesus to the chief priest's compound where he's being held and tried. And there he has various encounters and people are like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no, not me. And he does this three times, and then the rooster crows, and then he's like, I denied him three times. And so here it is, he's given three times to not only affirm, but to jump in and say, with my whole heart, Lord, I love you. I love you. But notice, Jesus doesn't just receive the praise. Jesus gives him the task. If you love me, then you will feed my lambs. If you love me, you will tend my sheep. If you love me, then you must do something in response to that love. 
And so Peter is now having to wrestle with, with this. And he's got this opportunity now. And Jesus says, you know what? I do know everything. I know everything, and I'm about to show you. I'm about to give you some prophecy. I know everything. And he recounts to him that there was a time where Peter was his own man. He put on his own belt. He walked wherever he wanted to go. He had autonomy. He did what he wanted to do. But now he knows Jesus Christ. Now he knows about the resurrection, and nothing will ever be the same, despite his attempts just now to make it that way. Nothing shall ever be the same. And he reveals to him a little prophecy about his own death. He says to him, there will come a time where you will stretch out your arms and someone will tie a different belt around you and lead you where you do not want to go. He's telling him that he will be martyred for his faith. He is letting him know that the world will never be the same, that Peter's life trajectory has just shifted and he will never be the same. Yet in spite of all of that, his closing words to Peter are, follow me. You now know. You have a choice. If Jesus had told you that your faith walk would end in death, you have a choice. You can walk away or you can continue. And Jesus says, follow me. Follow me in spite of what I've just told you. Follow me in spite of your failures and the humiliating embarrassments. Follow me in spite of the fact that right now we're having a God encounter and tomorrow it won't feel this raw and wonderful. Follow me because we have a relationship and I have called you. Follow me. And today is one of those days where we are looking at relationships. We're focusing on a secular level in the world on Mother's Day. And we're very attuned to that. My mother's here. My kid's here. We're changing dynamics there. And we're trying to figure out, you know, is this an opportunity for us to celebrate our mothers? Or is it a time for us to allow people to celebrate us if we are mothers? Is this a time for us to mourn the fact that we have lost our mothers? Or that if we... Are women that we have lost children? Are we mourning the fact that for some of us we will never be mothers? Some of us have tried and our bodies have failed us and circumstances have wounded us and we are mourning. Today is not just a happy day for some. Today is a day where some are in a place of deep fracture and hurt and sorrow and mourning. For others of us, it is a day of joy. It is a day of gratitude and thanksgiving. As I simultaneously am remembering and mourning a miscarriage, I have a nine-year-old over here who doesn't daily make me mourn. But we are in a place of flux in the life of the church. We come here in different states. But one of the greatest redemptive qualities about a Mother's Day is that it's truly about relationship. It's not about who showers their mother with the most things and shows them, I bought you the biggest bouquet, therefore I love you more. But it's actually a time where people who don't have strong relational bonds on a daily basis rekindle and reconnect. They rejoin. And that's what the gospel was today. Three times Jesus appeared to his apostles after the resurrection. The first time he showed up and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas was like, come on. And then Jesus appeared again and Thomas got his fix. And this time he appears and Thomas is there. This time, did you catch it in the text? Thomas is there. And this time he appears and he serves them, he makes them a meal, he calls them to follow him and to tend to his sheep, he gives them purpose because they were purposeless. They didn't understand and so they just defaulted back to what they knew. But if we stay committed into the relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if we constantly pursue that connection and those opportunities for us to experience him and his grace and his love then we will always have purpose. We will always have a relationship. 
And our relationship isn't just between us and God. It's about us with others so that we can experience God in other human beings and they can experience God in us. And so these relationships are so important. Whether or not we have a birth mother in our lives, whether or not we have adoptive mothers in our lives, or whether we just have honorary mothers. I have a lot of women that have shaped me for the better in my life. I have lots of women that I give thanks for on a daily basis because of what they have done for me. And this is an opportunity for us to stop our busyness and our normalcy of our lives and go, you know what, you are extraordinary to me. What you did for me, what you have said, how you have loved me, how you have nurtured me, not just into existence, but how you have helped me to be the person that I am right now, and you are enabling me to grow into the person that God is going to transform me to be. Those are beautiful things. That's about relationship. Because the church is truly about relationship. When you look at the metaphor that Jesus was constantly giving to his disciples, he said the church is like the body of Christ. That we are a body. And the body is so complicated. And I learn this every day that I get older. That the body is complicated. My mother was a registered nurse. She's retired now. But she used to have this huge set of books. And every volume was a different system in the body. And there's the endocrine system. And there was the cardiovascular system. The scary one was the reproductive system. Stay away from that book. But I would look at these books and flip through it. And I'd be like, this is ridiculous. How does the body work? Anything can go wrong at any moment, and all these things are simultaneously happening, connecting my tissue and my skeleton and my organs and my thoughts, my neurological system, how I feel. And I would be so amazed by that. And I can remember one time saying to my mom, like, I don't know how the body works. Like, I mean, I, I know how the body works. I can see the books. But how does this happen? Why don't I have to think about it? And my mother, who was scientifically trained and had this degree in medicine and had been practicing nursing for decades, looked at me and was like, because God is miraculous. Because God does miraculous things. And that is true in relationship today. That the church is a place where miraculous things happen because of relationship. Because we are connected to one another. Because we choose to be connected to someone to whom we do not have to be connected. It's not like there are blood relatives or it's not like there are best friends. There are relationships that form in the church that we would never choose. And yet, because of God's grace and God's love and God's urging through our faith, we are able to make connections that are not only fruitful for us and fruitful for the body of Christ, but they're fruitful for others. Because the sad, horrific, sinful truth is that there are people in this world who are supposed to be part of the body of Christ and they feel like amputeed limbs. They feel like they have been cut off and cast aside and they don't feel like they can ever be part of the body. They feel rejected and hurt. They feel forsaken and unforgiven. And it is only through relationship that they can discover God's grace for them, that they can hear the words that you are a beloved human being, a person of sacred worth. And God not only chooses you, but chose you long before the day of your birth. Chose you before we knew you, before anyone in this earth knew of you. God chose you for God's self. And when we build relationship and we perpetuate and cultivate that relationship and nurture it, then we are enabling God to speak through that. Because nothing impacts us more than a right relationship. It shapes how we hear, what we speak, what we see, how our mind processes. It 
changes how we feel and emote the love that we have. It changes what we do, where we go, how we behave, how we live our lives. That's the power of relationship. That's why Jesus took the time to have relationship with these people. These lost and wayward and mortal and frail and sinful disciples. He took time to be in relationship with them. To meet them where they were. To bask in presence with one another. To give them something to eat. And then allow them to process all of that. And when this was all over, when all of this time after the resurrection was over, he still looked at them and said, I am not going to leave you orphaned. I am not going to forsake you. You're not going to see me in a little while. But God will still be with you through the Holy Spirit because this relationship that we have cultivated is too meaningful to cut it off. Even if you don't see me, God will unite me. And today we remember that. That for some of us, the older we get, the more these relationships that we love change. People die, people move. There are people in the church even that are unable to be here because of health and because of the aging process has stripped them of their ability to get here with their own license or they can't drive anymore. And so it becomes incumbent on the church to reach out to people and remind them, though you may not be here in person, you are with us in spirit. We still know you and love you and cherish you and value you because you are a vital part of our body. And the miraculous truth about the body of Christ is that unlike the human body, if a piece of it is not visible and present, it is still connected. It is still vital and beloved. And because of the Holy Spirit, these systems still work, still flow, bringing life-giving blood of Jesus Christ to all members of the body, present or not. And we celebrate that in the church. Because ultimately, if we don't continue to pursue this relationship with Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ with others, then the church perishes. The blood of Christ ceases to flow into other people. That life-giving water from the spring of life fails to nourish. And spirituality atrophies, just like our muscles and our bodies do when we don't properly nourish them. Because when the systems in the body aren't in right relationship, the body suffers and dies. But if we are committed to right relationship, then we can overcome anything. We can overcome disagreements and conflict, brokenness, fractures. We can overcome natural disasters. We can overcome the trials and the tribulations of living in this world and what the world does to us as individuals and as a church because of relationship. And that is God's gift to us. We have such an amazing God that for those of us who were deprived of the mother that we would have loved or we were deprived of the children that we wanted to mother, God says, I will be your divine parent. And I will lead you to a place where there will be others who will nurture and mentor and love you. And I will lead you to a place that when you are ready, you can nurture, mentor, and parent others. What a glorious God we serve who understands that it is about relationship and not rightness. It's a God who seeks to have us be with one another and with God rather than build a hierarchy that is all about who is better. We are here because God didn't look at us and say, I'm done. We are here because God looked at us and said, you know what? If you just fish to the right, 
you're going to find everything you want. If you just move a little bit this way, come just a little closer to me, and you're going to find just how incredible it is. And so when we go forth from this place today, whether we're going to celebrate someone or tell, have an opportunity to call or email or, or rekindle some connection with somebody, I hope what we remember is that every single one of us leaves this place as a vessel of relationship and that it is our time to say to somebody today, I am thankful for you, for what you do for me, whether it's the way you make me laugh or the way you make me feel, the way you make me think, the way you keep me on edge with your crazy questions, whatever it is. But to recognize with gratitude that right relationship makes us grateful and want more. And it makes us want to be in right relationship with others. It makes us want to continue to build connections, to build a system of loving relationship. Because it is through those veins and those arteries that the gospel truth flows forth to the world. And we are the way in which God has determined that we will do that. And that is terrifying. It is overwhelming. It can seem to be an insurmountable task. But do we not serve a God who can do all things? And so today, may we go forth to take our rightful place in building, establishing, perpetuating, and celebrating those right relationships. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.